محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم نوين التعلم والتعليم والتذكر والتذكير والنفع والانتفاع والإثارة والاستفارة والحث على التمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم والدعاء للهدى والدلالة على الخير بتغاء مرضات الله وجهه وقلبه وطبعه اللهم افتح علينا بحكمتك وانشر علينا برحمتك يا الجلال والإكرام بسم الله so um, for anyone who's coming for the first time uh, or the first or not the first time but you haven't heard some of the comments then welcome alhamdulillah um, we usually have breakfast from 10 to 10:30 and then the lesson from 10:30 to 11:30 inshallah and the children's program runs also usually 10:30 to 11:30 <coughs> uh, for those who been here you know that we're reading from this book this book is called the heirs of the prophets it's a commentary of ibn rajab and hanbali who was a prominent scholar of the middle century the middle centuries uh, on a hadith of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that uh, basically encourages one in their seeking of knowledge and praises the rank of the scholars and so on and uh, there were a number of kind of comments or disclaimers that we've made throughout, maybe one or two of them will repeat. And <coughs> that is that when, personally, when I teach, and usually in the majlis it's this way, uh, but not always, but when I teach, I like to teach from a book. And the reason why I like to teach from a book is that I want people to be able to uh, reference it. If it's, usually it's an English translation. <coughs> Sometimes it's not, but even if it's not, at least there's a clear understanding of where this is coming from. Right? So this is the author, this is the text. If this is an English translation and one only speaks English, at least they can buy the text if they want, they can review it, they can take notes in it, they can go back to it. That way later on if they need to teach something they can use it, so on and so forth. And then also we like to do a lot of situating of the text. So that people can kind of understand, okay, where does this fit? In the broader framework or in the broader scaffolding, so to speak, of the world of Islamic studies. And uh, we also have, from time to time, made comments on the idea of the distinction between uh, Islamic knowledge and Islamic information. So, you know, information is great, alhamdulillah, it gives us some direction, it gives us some reminder, and it kind of points us to where we would like to go. Um, can feel free to sit wherever you like and pull chairs wherever you like. If there's no chairs and you want a chair, I think there's more in the kitchen, uh, which is just over here. <coughs> um, I would get it myself, but I can't. <laughs> I'm kind of stuck here. Um, so this idea that there's information and there's knowledge, right? So information are these nice, beautiful things that we learn, stories, ideas, reminders, so on and so forth. But we like to actually uh, come from the angle of knowledge, which means that there's a structure to it, there's a building on it that occurs. And then as we do that, we'll get information here and there. You know, it'll sprinkle in and it will help us to, to get that. So this is again one hadith of the Prophet them by Ibn Rajab. And uh, we'll continue reading. We also mentioned before that the other thing that I prefer to do, especially with adults, can't usually get away with it with children, is to read the text word by word. Because when you read the text word by word, then you really know it. You know, this is a, 
And I mentioned before that I rejected this method of learning for many years of my life. And uh, later on, like relatively recently, maybe the last seven years, uh, came to believe that this is actually the right method. It's the method that was used by the people of knowledge, generation upon generation. That when you read a text, you know, you choose a text that's worth reading word by word, and you read it word by word. That way we can grow. You know, we don't want to be in the same position. Say we keep meeting, and we, three years from now we're still here Sunday morning. We don't want to feel like we're in the same place that we were today. We should feel that, okay, we understood this, and we're building on the things that we learned, and so on. So chapter 7, Bismillah. This means that the author says the following May Allah give us and them benefit from their knowledge in this life and the next. Amen. So, this is also like it's important to make dua for people when we read their books. That's part of how we benefit from it. Um, I have a note on the side here before I read what's there that says bad experiences shouldn't cause hatred for true scholars because that's very dangerous. Okay, so let's see what the text says. I'm curious now. Bismillah. Chapter 7 is called Scholars and Worshippers. Scholars and Worshippers. It is obvious from the preceding chapters that love of the sincere scholars is an essential part of this religion. Ali radiallahu said to Kumail ibn Ziyad, Loving the scholars is an act of worship. Loving the scholars is an act of worship. A well-known narration exhorts us, be a scholar, a teacher, a listener, or one who loves them. Do not be in a fifth category and thereby be ruined. So you might think about this, like, okay, how do I, let me think about this for a second. What do you say? Be a scholar, be a teacher, be a listener, or one who loves them. So clearly if there's a list, then these things that are being listed, they're different categories, right? So you distinguish between a scholar and a teacher, by the way, which is interesting, because someone can teach and they're not necessarily a scholar. A scholar is very high caliber. So there's a scholar, there's a teacher, there's a student, there's a listener, and there's one who loves them. If you're not from one of these categories, then he says, if you're not from these categories, then you're going to be ruined. Why would you be ruined, of course? Because the whole point of the book and the whole point of the hadith is to say that the prophets, what they brought us was, was knowledge. And they brought us guidance. And so the true scholars who come after the prophets, uh, they are the inheritors of that knowledge and the ones who practice it and live it and teach it to people. And so if we don't love those people, then what does that say about our relationship with what the prophets actually brought? Right? This, is the, this is the issue. Uh, and of course, we've made many hundreds of disclaimers that if someone doesn't act upon their knowledge, they don't fit in this category. They don't fit in the category if they don't act upon it. Meaning, it doesn't matter if they're the most knowledgeable outwardly person in the world. If they're corrupt, they're corrupt. They're not, they're not a scholar. Okay? If they're the most knowledgeable, they can quote you everything under the sun. They can answer any question you ask them. But they steal people's money. They steal people's money. They're not a scholar. This means that whoever abandons any of the first four praiseworthy categories necessarily enters a fifth and is thus ruined. He is neither a scholar, a student, a listener, nor one who loves scholars. He is therefore ruined, or she. Whoever hates scholars, he loves their ruin. Who, and one who loves their ruin loves for the light of Allah to be extinguished on earth 
and for sin and corruption to appear. This is consistent with what Sufyan and others among the righteous forebears have stated, have said. And this is where we get into like a little bit of, it's a reminder to myself too, we have to be a little bit careful uh, with all of these issues around spiritual abuse and stuff like that. Not because they're not real and not because we shouldn't care. Anyone who knows my track record and has followed my public work, you know where I stand on all of these things. But uh, the idea here is that even if, for example, a masjid, maybe you have experienced that all of the masajid you've ever been to were bad. <laughs> they just didn't do anything for you and you had bad experiences in them and so on and so forth. The challenge with this and the challenge of critiquing this is that the position of the masjid still has to remain high in our hearts. Because it's the house of Allah. Irregardless. All of these issues, all of these problems, all of what, everything else, it's still the house of Allah. So when we critique it, as Imam Ghazali says this in the rights of brotherhood, that from the rights of brotherhood is that we're not like so critical of one another all the time. Because what happens is, even if you're right about the thing that you're criticizing, it creates a distance between you and the one that you criticize. Okay? So even if you're right, it does, right? We know it. If we're honest with ourselves, we know it. Someone comes to us, they say something to us, they, they bring something to our attention. For the vast majority of people, it kind of like gives them a little bit of, like it makes, even if you get over it, many people, they have taqwa, mashallah, they get over it. So, but the initial response, the nafs is always there. Like the base self is always there. It kind of rebels a little bit and it creates this space. So we critique the masajid, we critique the religious teachers, we critique all of these things. Uh, we can inadvertently create bigger problems actually. So then now you have a broad culture for example, and it's not only here in America by the way, there's many places in the Muslim majority lands where you have this culture. You have a culture of not trusting the religious teachers because people have seen all kinds of things, right? And so then it becomes like, okay, you know, I won't repeat some of the things I've said because there's some young people in the room, some things I've heard from people on this topic. But then what that means is, so then are they, are, are true teachers real or not? This is the issue. Are true teachers real or not? If they're real, then that has a consequence for me in my life, you know? And if I'm too like, negative about all of these things, then what might happen is that I'm able to notice all of the false ones and all of the problematic ones, but I'm not able to notice the real ones either. And that's like very scary, you know? And, uh, Give us true and good teachers who help us to come closer to Him. <coughs> a servant of a particular ruler hated Abu Faraj ibn Jozi and strived to harm him. Ibn Jozi was a very famous Hanbali scholar, also roughly middle period. Um, he was also known to be, although he was a great scholar, he was from the category, there's a few people, they were not only great scholars, but they were great preachers. The two don't usually come together. <laughs> For, you know, there's, there's a certain uh, rigor that's needed for serious scholarship that doesn't always lend well to uh, preaching. You know? So they don't always go together, but sometimes you find it. So Ibn Jozi was from that category of people who were both. And he was known that like, thousands of people would attend his lectures. You, know, you can imagine that in a pre-modern reality. Like someone has to repeat what he's being said and they still come and listen. You know, think about it. If there's no microphone and there's a thousand people, you can't hear, right? If you're, if you're a certain distance away, you can't hear. So someone has to repeat what he's being said. And they would still come and listen. And they said that people, so many people would like, make toba in his gatherings. 
it was unbelievable. And I've read before that in one of the things they used to, some people used to do when they make Tawbah is they used to, when they turn back to Allah and they ask for forgiveness and they want to turn their life around, is that they'll shave their head. Men, of course, not women. But <laughs> they'll shave their head and it's kind of like, it's a new beginning, you know. It's like a symbolic thing. It's not that you should have to do that or something, but it's just, anyways. Ibn al-Jawzi. So this man didn't like Ibn al-Jawzi and wanted to harm him. One of Ibn Jozi's friends saw the man in a dream being carried to hell and inquired of the reason for such a terrible state. It was said because he hated Ibn Jozi. Ibn Jozi relates, when the hatred and abuse of this person became unbearable, I sought refuge with Allah that he exposed his weakness. Allah ruined him soon thereafter. SubhanAllah. The really important note here is that there's a lot of patience first. Right? So what is Ibn Jozi saying? He's saying, look, I did everything I could with this person. I was patient with them, I was patient with them, I was patient with them, I gave them chances, I tried to forgive them, because he's a very righteous person, you know. His books are still read up to today, by the way. Like, uh, he has uh, many famous works. Probably, uh, you know, there's like Salem Khatir, which is like a book on reminders. There's Sifat uh, al-Safwa, which is a book on biographies. He's the one that wrote Minhaj um, al-Qasidin, actually. He, he, did, he, he took issue with some things Imam al-Ghazali had in his Ihya, so he wrote his own. The one that's more commonly found now is Mukhtasir bin Ajan Qasidi. Uh, and that's of Ibn Qudamah. But the original text of it is Ibn Jozi. So he's a, a big figure. So he says that after that I sought refuge in Allah from this person, then he'll be exposed and afterwards it was a problem. There's a subtitle here of To Kill a Scholar is to Kill a Successor of the Prophet At the time that Hajjaj killed Sayyid ibn Jubair, the people were in dire need of Sayyid's knowledge. Hajjaj thus prevented the people from benefiting from that knowledge. Someone saw in a dream that Hajjaj suffered the trials of being killed once for everyone who fell during his assault of Sayyid. For slaying Sayyid, he was killed 70 times. <coughs> so I mentioned before, I think that Sayyid ibn Jubair was from the scholars and righteous people of the Tabirni. Uh, if I'm not mistaken and remember correctly, he was black in color. It's very common uh, in the early period and later on. But it's notable for the American context. And... Um, <coughs> He was persecuted by a ruler of his time named Hajjaj. And um, so this is what it's saying that, that people needed Sayyid. People needed Sayyid. It's a very important thing to recognize. Like, yes, I can worship Allah. If it was as simple as we just worship Allah, because we have this like anti-Catholic bent in America, right? It's, it's actually, and we, we inherited it in the Muslim community. The anti-Catholic bent in the America is like America is very Protestant, right? Which is like basically Kitab and Sunnah. <laughs> it's a very Protestant approach. It's like, I'm going to go to the Quran myself. I'm going to go to the Sunnah myself. I'm going to follow it. There's no intermediaries. It's just me and Allah. It's very Protestant. And like in America, it's very Protestant. It's not very Catholic, right? <clears throat> so we inherit some of that also as a community. We're like, well, I don't need anyone. I just need the Quran. And I just need the hadith of the Prophet And there's truth in that, of course. Like, everyone is responsible for their own relationship with Allah. In the end of the day, we're all responsible for our own relationship with Allah. And it's me who has to carry that on my own shoulders. And that's on my, it's for me to do, right? But, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that I have to do it alone. And, and, you know, there's actually verses in the Quran, I don't remember them right now, but like... You know, the Prophet was given aid by his companions. And the companions were aid to one another. And the righteous people are always keys to other people experiencing righteousness. 
Like you can't. That the person who doesn't have something, they can't give it. Person who doesn't have something, they can't give it. And how am I going to get something that I don't have? Um, it's it's yeah we can of course Allah is Allah people always say well Allah is Allah Allah can do whatever He wants of course but like do you say that about your job <laughs> you know Allah is Allah He's gonna provide for me so you're just not gonna go to work you don't go to school you don't like you know we don't study so we're not gonna study books anymore to learn about the religion we're just gonna pray in the night and say Allah is gonna give me knowledge no, it doesn't work that way right there's outward ways there's outward steps that we take in order to benefit in order to grow in every other area of our lives. We understand and we recognize the need of mentors and the need of people who can help us and people who help us grow and so on and so forth. And the same is true with our relationship with Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> they exist. It's hard to believe. We, we, because the lives we live are so oftentimes steeped in materialism that it's hard for us to realize that like, there's actually people who don't live like that. <laughs> you know, who they have a different thing going on. They're playing by different rules. And then they're, they're in the same place. So the people needed Sa'id. The point here was that the people needed Sa'id. And Hajjaj killed Sa'id. So he's responsible now for everyone who didn't benefit from him. He's responsible for them. This understanding is consistent with the idea that the most severely punished of people is one who kills a prophet, since the murderer has striven to work corruption in the earth. Whoever kills a scholar has killed a successor of the Prophet and has likewise gone to great lengths to spread corruption in the earth. For this reason, Allah has specifically linked the killing of prophets and the killing of righteous scholars. Those who reject the signs of Allah and unjustly kill the prophets and kill those who command justice announce to them a painful punishment. Quran 321. Ikrama, as well as others among the righteous forebears, said concerning the following verse. So this is the verse. Whoever kills a human being except as retribution for murder or corruption in the earth, it is as if he has killed all of humanity. And whoever saves a life, it is as if he has saved all of humanity. 532. And then he said, commenting on this, Ikrimah Ikrima is from the scholars of the Tabi'in. Actually, he's from the scholars of the Sahaba. Which Ikrimah is this? Hold on. I think there's two Ikrimahs. It's probably the Sahabi. But Allahu I don't have the Arabic in front of me. I might say Imam Zaid so perhaps it's Sahabi. In any case, he commented on this verse and he said, Whoever kills a prophet or just Imam, it is as if he has killed all of humanity. And whoever supports a prophet or a just Imam, it is as if he has saved all of humanity. <coughs> it is as if he has saved all of humanity. You know, uh, it just occurred to me that something else I may have mentioned before. You know, I was teaching in the school recently and uh, we were, I think I, I may have told you, I, I'm sorry if I repeat things, you know, I teach in so many different places now that I don't know what I've said where, to be quite honest. So I'm sorry if I repeat things and, uh, you know, our teachers used to say, there's a benefit in repetition. Um, that we were covering one of the authors of a text that we were studying with the students. Follow, the sixth graders are following the same methodology that you're following, read old texts. Uh, so, uh, you know, he died just over 200 years ago, uh, 1786 I think it was. And so I told them, I'm like, yeah, so, so look, mashallah, he's very recent, he didn't die very long ago. 
The students were like, what? <laughs> Very recent, it's 250 years ago, you know? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but for us, that's really recent. Like, it's, it's very important. We, like, his, his text, it's only, it's, it's good and it's sound because for 250 years, it's been accepted and good and sound, right? But Ibn Rajab, for example, you know, I forget what his death date was, but it's in here. Um, you know, if I had to guess, it's probably six or seven hundred years ago, right? So Ibn Rajab is known for the last 600 years. You know, just think about that for a second. Like, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people have studied Islam, and all of them have read Ibn Rajab. So there's like an understanding of, all right, this has been tried at some level. And this is a very central idea to our worldview. Our worldview is very much like, I'll trust the things that are tried and true. And the reason why I'm saying that is because that's not really the way we function here right now in this moment. Here right now in this moment, it's like we're going to try all kinds of things. We don't know actually what they're going to result in, how it's going to go, what the consequence is going to be, but we're just going to try it, you know? So alhamdulillah, this has been used for 700 years, 800 years. People have been reading this book. The full moon, the stars, and the planets. The Prophet said, the superiority of the scholar over the devout worshiper is like the superiority of the full moon over the rest of the heavenly bodies. The meaning conveyed by this hadith has been related from the Prophet by way of Mu'adh and Abu Darda with a broken chain of transmitters. Mm. This metaphor contains a comparison between the scholar and the full moon. So he makes this is a comment on like hadith sciences, but generally the, you want the chain of transmission to not have any gaps in it. Uh, maybe we'll study Hadith sciences one day and we can go into more detail, but for now we'll just leave it at that. Although, just know there's a lot more to the conversation. This metaphor contains a comparison between the scholar and the full moon. The full moon represents the scholar, owing to the exquisite luminance of its light, while the planets represent devout worshippers. Difference in the radiance of the full moon and that of the planets represents the difference in virtue between the scholar and the devout worshipper. The underlying reason for this, and Allah knows best, is as follows. A planet's light does not extend beyond itself, whereas the light of the full moon shines upon the Earth's inhabitants. They are illuminated by it and guided in their travels. Um, so, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned the planets, not the stars, because the planets are not used for guidance as much as the stars. Hence, they have the status of the devout worshipper whose benefit is limited to himself. Obviously, people in the past, they would navigate through the stars. Right? Stars are what helps them to navigate their distances and their geographies and to know where they are and where they should go and so on and so forth. As for the stars, they are the heavenly bodies that are used for guidance, as Allah the Exalted says, and by the stars are people guided through the land and the sea. Quran 16.16. He also says, It is he who has set for you the stars that you may be guided by them through the darkness of the land and sea. 6.97. In another hadith, the Prophet also compared the scholars of his nation to the stars. So this is the idea. They're like, they, they give us guidance. And if you don't find living ones, at least use the ones who passed away. Maybe you had, it's okay. Use the ones who passed away. They're, they're also a guide. It has been said that the moon derives its light from the sun. SubhanAllah. We understood that. It's interesting. It has been said that the moon derives its light from the sun, just as the scholar is a reflection of the light of the divine message. Even he makes this connection. Look at that. They understood, they understood, apparently they understood that at that time. It's very interesting. The moon derives its light from the sun just as the scholar is a reflection of the light of the divine message. 
For this reason, he has been compared to the moon and not the sun. SubhanAllah. The Prophet ﷺ was a lamp and a luminous moon which shone upon the earth. The scholars, as his heirs and successors, are compared to the bright and luminous full moon. Some people, they said that if you long for the, you long for the Sahaba, you long for the Prophet ﷺ, then look upon the moon. Right? Because it's the same moon. Same moon that we look at is the same moon that the Prophet ﷺ looked at. It's the same moon that was miraculously split. Right? It's the same conversation. That's why there's a sister in the UK, she wrote this beautiful poem. It's called The Soliloquy of the Full Moon. If you can find it, I suggest you get it. Read it with your families and stuff. It's very beautiful. It's called Soliloquy of the Full Moon. And what she did was she took the tradition of writing poetry, praising the Prophet and she was 16 when she wrote it, subhanAllah. She wrote it and she, she wrote a thousand line poem in English, on English meter, and praising the Prophet through a conversation with the moon. It's really beautiful. So she like calls to the moon and she tells the moon like, you know, tell me about the beloved. You saw the beloved. I didn't see the beloved. Like, tell me about him. It's a very beautiful poem. And it incorporates the names of the prophets and Allah while there's in them and it's put in there and stuff. It's really remarkable. She was 16 when she wrote it. This came out I don't know, a couple years ago. The soliloquy of the full moon. This, this genre is very important, you know? Like, knowledge is one thing, but we want our hearts to also come alive. So that's a genre of, you praise the Prophet you learn a little bit about his life, but it's more devotional than intellectual, right? And so that brings life to the heart. It's very beautiful. Righteous scholars are the first to enter paradise. The Prophet narrates in his sound hadith, the first contingent to enter paradise will resemble the full moon. Those entering after them resemble twinkling stars. It is not unreasonable to say, and Allah knows best, that the righteous scholars are among this first contingent because they occupy the status of the full moon in this world. They are joined by the distinguished believers, those whose anecdotes are remembered, hearts are softened when they are mentioned, and their words are sought. As for the second contingent, they are ordinary believers. When Al-Awza'i died, he was the Imam of the Syrians in knowledge and was intensely fearful of Allah. A person saw him in a dream saying, I haven't seen anything in paradise greater than the rank of the scholar and the righteous, sober individuals who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, Imam al-Awza'i was, he was a mujtahid imam in the time of the four imams. So in the time of the four imams, he's, there were many other mujtahid imams. Mujtahid imam is like the level of the four imams. There were actually dozens and dozens of them in that era. That was the era of the mujtahid imams. But their knowledge wasn't all preserved in the way that the knowledge of the four imams was preserved. So we have a lot, we know a lot about al Zari. His actually lasted a little bit longer than the others. Uh, you know, so there was a time where in Syria still his method was followed and stuff like that. So he says, I haven't seen anything in paradise greater than the rank of the scholar and the righteous, sober individuals who fear Allah. Uh, this is also important, like generally in Islamic spirituality, there's supposed to be some level of sobriety to it. Like, yeah, sometimes people get really excited and they might, you know, whatever. They might get overwhelmed with their excitement. But the general trend of spirituality is very sober. And the idea is that this is between me and Allah, and it happens in my heart. It's not meant to happen outside. And because it's between me and Allah, I want to keep it as hidden as possible between me and Allah. So you keep it. It's, it's all about stuff that you experience inside for yourself. And the less of that you can expose to other people, it's like, you know, it's like in a relationship, if you're married, right? You don't share 
stuff about your spouse with everybody, especially the stuff that's very close, very intimate, things like that, right? So our relationship with Allah actually is very intimate. It's the most intimate relationship. You know, there's, n- there's no relationship that's as intimate as a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nobody knows our innermost secrets. Only Allah. No one knows the things that we don't say to anyone else. Only Allah, right? So that's now, if, I have, if, I, if Allah gives us the blessing of tasting a little bit of the sweetness of that relationship. And again, these are me- the, the metaphors are important. In the books, they always refer to the relationship with Allah like as a love relationship. That's why the poems, they, in Busiri, he followed the tradition of the Arab poets. The Arab poets, they start their poems with love. You know, there's ghazal. It's like all love stuff. My beloved, and this and that, and so on and so forth. And Busiri, when he wrote about the Prophet them the Burda, he started with the same thing. Right? Because now who's the beloved now? It's the Prophet Who is the beloved is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why even some of the righteous people they would refer to the moment of death as the wedding night. That this is the and this and this in, in, in many countries they refer to that, right? Like a certain person's death date, they call it the Urs of so and so. It's their wedding. Because who did they meet? They met their beloved, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right, so if, if there's something between me and Allah, then if I, want it, if I want to keep it, I keep it between me and Allah. I don't tell anyone else about it. Right? And, uh, you know, it's the way things are. If you have something special between you and someone else, you don't tell everyone else about it. It's not special anymore then. Right? And for Allah, it's even more serious. So you find people of like tremendous spirituality, they don't say much. I was reading one of the books, he said, one of the righteous people, he quoted him, he said, I, I worked all day long and I came at the end of the day to analyze the things that I said. And I found that I said four words. <laughs> he was like holding himself accountable for it. <laughs> I said like four words in the day. I spoke four times, right? And it's, <clears throat> it's like, there's a whole world inside that's far greater than the world outside. All of its details, all of its intricacies, all of its, uh, it's really a beautiful thing. The virtue of knowledge over ordinary worship. The hadith of Abu Darda clearly indicates the preference of knowledge over ordinary worship. There is much evidence for this position. Allah says, are they equal those who know and those who know not? 39.9. He also says, Allah elevates and degrees those who believe among you and those possessing knowledge. 58.11. Ibn Mas'ud and others among the righteous forebears have explained this to mean that Allah raises those endowed with knowledge degrees above the unlearned believers. Again, if it's knowledge that they act upon, they're benefiting from that knowledge. Tirmidhi relates that Abu Umama, from Abu Umama, that two men were mentioned to the Prophet ﷺ, one of them a devout worshiper and the other a scholar. And the Prophet ﷺ said, the virtue of the scholar over the devout worshiper is like my virtue over the lowest of you. It's a very heavy statement. It's like my virtue over the lowest of you. Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah relate a hadith from Ibn Abbas who related that the Prophet said, A single knowledgeable believer is harder on Satan than a thousand devout worshippers. Ibn Majah relates that Abdullah bin Amr said, The Messenger of Allah emerged one day and entered the masjid. He found before him two gatherings, one engaged in Quranic recitation and invoking Allah, the other in scholarly discourse. The Prophet said, In each group there is good. It's important. In each group there is good. These are reciting the Qur'an invoking Allah. If He wills, He will grant their request. And if He wills, He will withhold it. These are engaged in scholarly discourse, and I have been sent as a teacher. He then sat with the latter, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He said, إِنَّمَا بُعِثْتُ مُعَلِّمًا 
I was sent as a teacher Ibn Mubarak after relating this hadith in Kitab al-Zuhd adds the latter are better the latter are better people of knowledge he said both of them there's good in them he didn't say they're both equal right so Ibn Mubarak adds this comment Ibn Mubarak is a very interesting figure in early Islamic history he was from the students of Abu Hanifa so he's a scholar of fiqh He's also a scholar of hadith. He's the one who said the famous statement about the importance of isnad, the importance of the chain of narration in Islamic studies. He was also a mujahid. He was also an ascetic, pious person. So it was a very interesting figure. There's a book that was published recently on his life by Dr. Feriel Sanam. She's like, a, I think she's heading Hartford Seminary now to change, change Muslim chaplains and stuff. She wrote a book on him. I just saw it a day or two ago. Uh, looks quite good, but I think it's published by Grill. If anyone knows what that means. Anyone know what that means? It's published by Brill? Anyone? That means it's going to be an outrageously expensive amount <laughs> of money. Everything published by Brill is like $100. Over $100, you know. I don't know. They're like the most prestigious academic publishing platform. You know, if you get published in Brill, it's like a big deal. Especially in Islamic studies and stuff. But it also means that your book will be in like all the university libraries and stuff, but nobody else can get it because it's hundred dollars or hundred twenty dollars or two hundred dollars. I don't know, and it's not necessarily by the way that the author is getting that money. Just so everyone's on the same page, usually very little of that money is going to the author. Uh, anyways, Tabarani relates from Abdullah ibn Umar from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. A little knowledge is better than abundant worship. Bazar, Hakim, and others narrate from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam on the basis of numerous chains. Copious knowledge is more beloved to Allah than copious worship, and scrupulousness is the best thing for your religion. Scrupulousness is like when you're, you have a level of um, scrupulousness about your religious matters. I don't know how to translate that. In Arabic, it's called wara. Wara, like you have some awareness, you have some concern. You know, like a person doesn't want to take money that's not theirs. They don't want to do things that are not acceptable. And they have this kind of... Um, consciousness about it. Okay. Um, Zuhri attributes the following saying to the Prophet sallallahu the scholar is 70 degrees more virtuous than the devout worshipper. Between each two degrees is a distance that would take a swift horse a hundred years to traverse. The narrations from the righteous forebears on this subject are quite numerous. For example, it is related from Abu Hurairah the least amount of sound knowledge is more beloved to us than a thousand units of voluntary prayer. Extra, more knowledge, a little bit extra knowledge to us is more beloved to us than a thousand units of extra prayer. In this statement, it's pretty heavy. Abu Hurairah also said, knowing a ruling related to Abu Darda, by the way, is, uh, you know, he's, he's one of the senior Sahabi senior sahaba, senior companions of the Prophet The knowledge of the Prophet that spread to Sham was largely from Abu Darda. He was the one who took it to Damascus in that area. Uh, <coughs> Abu Hurairah also said, knowing a ruling relating to a commander prohibition is more beloved to me than fighting 70 battles in the way of Allah. Ibn Abbas said, studying part of the night is more beloved to me than spending its entirety in prayer. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari said, studying with Abdullah bin Mas'ud is better for my soul than a year of worship. It's beautiful. All of these people, all of these statements are from senior Sahaba. Okay? Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, Abu Huraira, Ibn Abbas, Abu Darda, all of them are senior companions of the Prophet He's bringing all of these statements together. Why? Because if you hear just one, 
You might think, oh, that's just Abu Darda that was saying that. But if you hear it from four or five different of the companions of the Prophet then you understand that this wasn't like the singular position of one particular companion, but this was the general perspective and general understanding that these people took from the Prophet Okay. <clears throat> this last one is very beautiful, Abu, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, again, he's, he's, not, he's from senior companion, he's a scholar from the companions. And he's saying, studying with Abdullah bin Mas'ud, also companion, is better for my soul than a year of worship. That's so beautiful, subhanAllah. Hassan al-Basri said, learning an aspect of knowledge and teaching it to a Muslim is more beloved to me than possessing the entire world and using it in the way of Allah. Hassan al-Basri. Hassan al-Basri is one of the big names from the students of the Sahaba. Okay. So he said, learning an aspect of knowledge and teaching it to a Muslim is more beloved to me than possessing the entire world and using it in the way of Allah. He said on another occasion, if a man correctly learns, if a man correctly learns an aspect of knowledge and acts upon it, it is better for him than the entire world, even if he were given the world and used it all toward the hereafter. He also said the ink of the scholars and the blood of the martyrs flow in a single stream. He said, nothing which Allah has created is greater in terms of its reward than seeking knowledge, neither hajj, nor umrah, nor jihad, nor zakat, nor emancipating slaves. If knowledge had a physical image, it would be more beautiful than the sun, the moon, the stars, the sky, and a magnificent throne. MashaAllah, these are beautiful statements. Um, again, it's very important. You know, if we think about it really, and I'm, I'm always amazed with this actually. One, one of the things that's really amazing about the Muslims is that they love Allah and they love the Prophet and they love their religion. So it's very common, like in my, in my life, it's very common for me to meet Muslims who are really sincere and they make really consequential decisions in their life based on pieces of knowledge that they have. And one of the things that often surprises me is I'm, you know, they tell me about it or they talk to me about it and I'm thinking like, wow, subhanAllah, that's a big decision they made based on like this idea. And in my head, I'm like, that idea is not really like fully sound. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's actually not exactly right. It's, it's almost right, but it's, it's not quite right. And like the amount, again, the amount of decisions that are made based on, I mean, inshallah, Allah will reward the people. Allah will protect them even. Like I, I believe that if we're sincere and we're trying to do our best, even if the things that we're told that we act upon don't end up actually being right, Allah will protect us and Allah will give us good. And there, Alhamdulillah, Allah is still God and Allah is still present in our lives. But subhanAllah, my point is just to remind ourselves that like these pieces of information that we receive, they have major consequence. And when they're right, they, they make a big difference. And when they're wrong, they also make a big difference. SubhanAllah. And it's really hard to explain because sometimes it's in the details. You know, it's like, it's like I always tell people is, you know, and it's a little bit scary, Allah protect us. It's like everyone's studying the same books. You know, like if you're going to study fiqh, you study the same book in fiqh. They're known. If you're going to study hadith, you study the 40 hadith. Everyone studies the 40 hadith. Not everyone comes to the same conclusions. <laughs> so it's really... Um, this is why knowledge has to be taken, really, like, it's, it, there was an understanding amongst these people that you take knowledge, if you can, from the most senior people. And if you can't get to the most senior people, you get to the people who are connected to the most senior people. Because the most senior people, inshallah, it's more likely that they were not wrong. <laughs> but if you have someone who's kind of like just doing their own thing, 
then they're just doing their own thing. Allah protect us. Azohar he said, seeking knowledge is better than the worship of 200 years. Sufyan Thori and Abu Hanifa said, Sufyan Thori is also a Mujtahid Imam from that era. And Abu Hanifa, of course, is one of the four Imams. There is nothing after obligatory worship better than seeking knowledge. Sufyan also said, we know of no action better than seeking knowledge and hadith, if one does so with a good intention. He was asked what should his intention be, and he said he should desire Allah and paradise. That's why we learn these things. We learn these things so we can know Allah. As Shafi'i said, seeking knowledge is better than voluntary prayer. Imam Malik saw one of his students recording knowledge. The student abandoned his writing and stood up to perform a non-obligatory prayer. Thereupon Imam Malik said, I'm surprised at you. That which you stood for is not better than what you abandoned. Now again, why is he bringing all of them so that you understand that this was? Sufyan said it, he's a mujtahid imam. Abu Hanifa said it, he's a mujtahid imam. Shafi'i said it, he's a mujtahid imam. Malik said it, he's a mujtahid imam. Okay? So you understand that this isn't just their isolated opinion. This is understanding of this generation of people uh, who were also people of tremendous worship, as we mentioned before. They were also people of tremendous worship. Uh, Ahmed was asked, Imam Ahmed now, add Imam Ahmed. Imam Ahmed was asked, what do you consider better, that I spend the night in voluntary prayer or that I record knowledge? He replied, that you record what you know of your religion is more beloved to me. He also said, nothing is equivalent to knowledge. Mu'afi ibn Imran said, writing a single hadith is more beloved to me than spending a night in prayer. So this chapter is very strong and, and conveying this idea. Chapter 8, Virtue of Knowledge. Any questions or comments on Chapter 7? So you mind me raising your hand? No, I'm just wiping it up. Okay. Anyone? Yes. Too, like not all of these hadith are fully sound. You know, some of them, some of them are more sound, some of them are less sound. But he's, like, you know, this is the issue with hadith and kind of like, <coughs> how do I say this briefly? When we're trying to assess the reliability of a hadith, there's the angle of hadith sciences, which is very particular. Like, this is the rules: does it meet it or not? No, it's weak, it's or it's authentic. But when it comes to how we use the hadith in the context of knowledge, usually it's broader than that. Because just the pure mathematics of the hadith's reliability isn't the whole equation. The whole equation is actually, okay, so what if we have a hadith that seems like it's authentic, but it's not supported by anything else? Or we have a hadith that's not as authentic, but it corresponds with, the statements of all these imams and the statements of all these sahaba and this idea from the Qur'an so it might not mathematically be as strong but it's actually stronger you know so I, this particular narration there if I remember correctly there might there's some of these that are weak and there's some of them that are strong so they, 
but I think it's Kefadriana Edna Minkum or something like this. Can you say it a little bit louder? Sorry. The point regarding how uh, Muslims should try to be sober in their relationship with Allah, and from what I understood that you meant, whatever they do, they should keep between them and Allah's Can you just clarify that point? Sure. So this idea of being sober in our relationship with Allah and in our spirituality and trying to keep things between us and Allah, um, so I mean, the general idea is that if I can do something and not be known for it, it's better than doing something and being known for it. That's a general rule, right? Because if I do something and I'm known for it, then the possibility of my intentions becoming blurred is much more real. And that's why people like Ashafi used to say, I wish I could teach this knowledge to people and they forget where they got it from. You know, like, I, and this is actually, Let me, how do I say this? We know a lot about Islamic knowledge and we know a lot about these histories and these biographies and stuff like that. And I think it's fair to say that what we don't know about is far greater than what we know about. And the reason for that is because all of these people are like icebergs. The majority of them is under the water. It's not, it's not, it's not on top of the water. It's like they said about uh, Umar ibn Khattab when Abu Bakr was asking people about Umar and he wanted to appoint him as the Khalifa. One of them, he said, we don't know anything except good about Omar, and what we don't know about him is better than what we know about him. Think about this statement. We don't know anything about him except good, and what we don't know about him is better than what we know about him. It's a really amazing statement, actually. Right? So, you know, these, these people, like, these are the things that somehow we found them out. What, what are all the things that we didn't know about? Like even, there's a lot of stories about Abu Bakr like that, right? That he was doing all kinds of things nobody knew about. And Omar would find them afterwards and be like, okay, there's no way. <laughs> like I can't even come near Abu Bakr. Like there's so many things that he was doing. So that's the first general point. This point, by the way, uh, and I hope people don't misunderstand me on this, I believe is one of the keys to understanding the question of the role of women in Islamic civilization and knowledge and all of these kind of things. So sometimes people look at it and they're like, oh, there were no women. Well, maybe there were, but they managed to stay unknown. Right? So, which is actually better. <laughs> you know, it's important. Again, for male or female, it's not like a female issue. If someone could serve and someone could teach and you know, that's only between them and Allah, that's better. So, uh, I believe, for example, that there were, in every single generation, incredibly righteous women. We just don't know as much about them. Because they managed to keep it between them and Allah. And that makes it very special. Whereas, like, the man maybe has to go out and deal with society and deal with all these issues, and especially in, like, old school. You know, the women didn't have the same responsibilities, so she's able to have like this very real relationship with Allah. Doesn't involve other people in the same way. Um, and again, I hope people don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say about that. You know, I'm not saying that 
we have to like erase women or something. I mean, obviously, we don't believe that. <laughs> um, <coughs> but uh, but that's actually but the second point about what I was saying is that what I just commented on were things that people like in some level they often have to occur in public. So if someone's going to teach, you kind of have to teach in public. If some, it's probably like, in some ways safer too, because then at least you know where you're getting it from. Um, if people are going to uh, give charity, sometimes they have to give charity in public to motivate others, uh, and so on and so forth. But what I'm really talking about here is now, like, our experience of our relationship with God. Um, like, that is actually something. It's not, it's not meant to all just be dry and meaningless. Like, you know, I just did this thing and I did that thing and I was told to do this thing and then I did that thing. It's just a bunch of checklists, you know. Like we deal with Allah like we deal with an authoritarian parent. The authoritarian parent tells us, do this and this and this and this and this, and we do it, and alhamdulillah we did it. And that's it. But the relationship with Allah is actually a lot more than that, you know. It's like the relationship with, it's, a, it's meant to be a relationship of love, like true deep love, not just a relationship of uh, you know, I'm just going to obey you because I'm going to obey you and you're Allah and I don't want to be punished type thing. I mean, yeah, of course, that's, a, that's okay if you do that, but that's not really what it's supposed to be. And if it's really about love and it's really about, you know, this, this closeness with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then a lot of that is things that are, they call them in the, in the books of spirituality, they call them wadidat. Wadidat. Wadidat are the things like, you know, when you say, um, uh, in Egyptian Arabic, they use it differently. Say wadid. Something that's wadid is like something that happens, you know. But what it means is like the mawrid. The mawrid is the place in the desert where animals go to get water. So yedi They go to the water and they, they, they get this water, right? And it's it's like an arriving. So wadid. Wadid. The idea behind it is that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in the spiritual realm. There's things that Allah gives us in our hearts that يَرِدُ عَلَى الْقَلْبِ You know, they, they descend upon the heart. And this wadid is like, for example, Imam al-Dardir radiallahu anhu, one of the things he says, I was thinking about this on the way here actually, is that when you're making dhikr, it could be that you sit and you make dhikr. And as you're praising Allah, you start to feel something in your heart. If you feel like an intense feeling of gratitude, or maybe you feel an intense feeling of joy, or maybe you feel patience, like you're dealing with, you just feel calm now. Whatever this thing that we feel in our hearts, this is a wadid. So Allah has descended that upon the person's heart. And what Imam al-Dadir says is that if you experience this while you're making dhikr, then when you feel it, you should be as still as you can possibly be. Even to the extent that breathe as little as you can possibly breathe. He's like, if you feel it, just hold your breath as long as you can. And don't move. Because if you move, this is descending upon the heart, and if you move with the limbs and with the body, it will uh, disperse in the limbs. But if you stay as still as possible, then it will settle in the heart, and, you, and, and you'll actually get it. You know, like that feeling of immense gratitude. You might, and it happens like, it's not only when you make dhikr, like maybe you're driving, and you just see something, and you feel this tremendous gratitude. And when you feel that, he's like, just hold it. Hold it there. Is Imam Dardir? He's the one who we're studing in. Uh, we're studying his text in seventh grade. 
you know, Imam Darji was he's the one who died in 1786 that I was mentioned. Uh, he, he was a, a great, great figure in Islamic history. So he says, like, you just hold that thing. So that's not something that you have to tell people about. This is my point, right? So these things that happen in our hearts that make our relationship with Allah actually real, that stuff, there's no reason to tell people about it usually, and there's no need really to tell people about it usually, and we just keep it between us and Allah. This is what I was specifically referring to. Um, sometimes, you know, someone might just become so overwhelmed that they can't keep it in. And you see this, even with great people. They call it, uh, in the books of spirituality, they call it being majdub. When your majdub is like something has taken you. Literally means it's taken you. So like the experience of that just joy and everything else with Allah is so overwhelming that the person can't control themselves. They just keep talking and they keep saying things and you're like, whoa, I can't believe they're saying the things they're saying right now. And then afterwards they'll kind of be like, okay, I shouldn't have done that. So there's, a, there's like a, a sobriety to, you want to keep it in. Sometimes it overwhelms the person. You know, may Allah protect us when that happens, but uh, the ideal is we keep it in. Yeah. Yes? I officially closed the book, by the way. You know, don't worry, we're not starting a new chapter. Inshallah, next time we'll start chapter 8. So please, feel free to ask things. It's very important, actually. Like, it's very important to sit and listen and learn. And it's also very important to ask questions. Because a lot of the details of how we understand things, they get teased out in the question and answer. You don't know until you discuss it a little bit, you know? Yes? Um, so the gist of the chapter being that seeking knowledge is superior to nawafin um, uh, or um, extra prayers or something like that. How can a lay person like me apply that in my life? Like if I have, let's say, my basic knowledge homework of Hadith 101 or Fifth 101, if I'm sitting and doing that, is that also that kind of knowledge that will be far superior to me paying praise and extra prayers or maybe the or something like that? Yeah. So if you have Fiqh 101 or Hadith 101 homework, you're not necessarily the average Muslim, <laughs> first of all. But for the average Muslim, um, I mean, again, any knowledge that we get from a sound source is better than the extra prayer, technically speaking. However, as I mentioned last week, um, even if it's something that's really dry, you know, like you sit and you're studying the rules of business transactions and it's super dry. It's still better than praying to Rakah. However, this is, this is the thing. Technically, like this technicality is one thing, but the reality of our relationship with Allah is another thing. And that's why I said that we have to always, any narration, and this is why living, living scholars and teachers are so important too, is that any narration has to be understood alongside the practice of the person. Okay, so... Abu Hanifa says this, and Malik says this, and Ahmed says this, and Shafi'i says this, and they were also people who spent the whole night in prayer. So, we have to kind of make sense out of this somehow. You know, uh, it's not like, uh, because otherwise, you know, our, our hearts will die. And, um, and something can be better in general, and not better in particular. And this is the way fatwa works too, it's very important. Like you can have a general rule, but in a particular situation the general rule doesn't apply. And that can be for the law, that can also be for a person's relationship with Allah. So they say for example, that reading Qur'an in general is better than making du'a. 
better. When you look at the different verses and texts and so on and so forth, you say that reading Quran is better than making dua. And one of the reasons is that Quran includes dua, right? However, a person might be in a moment in their life where their situation is better for them to make dua in that moment than it is for them to read Quran. Okay? So you have a general rule, but in this time, the person is actually better for them to make dua. For example, that could be because of their situation, like internally, it could be because of their situation externally. Like when you're in sujood, are you supposed to be reading Quran? No. You're supposed to be making dua? Yes. So generally Quran is better, but in sujood, dua is better. Or if I'm going through something and I'm really like in a moment of difficulty and hardship and I really feel like, you know what, I need to talk to Allah right now. Talking to Allah right now is better for you than reading Quran. Maybe, for example, you don't even understand Arabic. There's a great blessing in the Qur'an, there's great barakah in reading the Qur'an, so on and so forth. But you don't understand Arabic. So your dua is more important than reading, is better for you than reading the Qur'an, and so on and so forth. So I say that to say that studying might be better in general than extra worship. And at the same time, it might be almost required for that person who's studying to do extra worship and not study in their particular situation. And like I said, I, I, I personally was affected by this, you know? That like I would read these narrations and then I wouldn't do any extra worship. And it wasn't good for me. And especially when you're seeking outward knowledge, like there's a dryness to it. And if we're honest with ourselves, like does it take very long to pray to our God? It doesn't take that long, you know? <laughs> if you're gonna stay up all night and study, it's not gonna, t if, say you're gonna spend four hours in the night studying, you can do a good amount of prayer in 30 minutes. You're right. So it doesn't, they don't, it doesn't have to be either or. Um, anyone else? Do you have any follow-ups? Does that help? Does anyone else have anything? Yes. Maybe a follow-up on that was like, uh, so she brought up like studying fiqh and hadith like 101. So I was wondering like, are these the only one-on-ones that we're discussing when we're talking about like seeking knowledge or does seeking knowledge like expand to seeking knowledge in like other areas of study as well? Like, uh, like pulling an all-nighter for your psych 101. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think that the general rule in the text is that all beneficial knowledge is good. And munafir. Not any knowledge. Right? Not any knowledge. It's not every knowledge is beneficial. But any knowledge that is beneficial, that will help us, that will help people, that will help us to build civilization and solve problems in the world and so on and so forth, all of that is beneficial knowledge and all of that is good with the right intention. But whether or not that's what's being referred to here, uh, I'm not really sure. I'm not inclined to believe that it is. So there's two things. Again, like sometimes we have to hold simultaneous truths. There's two truths we have to hold at the same time. One of them is that all beneficial knowledge is good. The other one is the knowledge of Allah and His Prophet and what they brought us is better than other knowledge. Now, it might be that a person... Now let's take it a step further though. Let's say... So if we think to 
like a classical Islamic education model. Classical Islamic education model would mean that the first things that you study in life are Islam. You know, you're not going to study math first. You're not going to study history first. You're going to study language because you need it to understand the text. And you're going to study Quran, you're going to study Hadith, you're going to study the different sciences of Islam. That's going to be your primary education. And what's interesting about that is that even in a Western sense, the, the core disciplines of primary education are grammar and rhetoric right, and logic. Grammar and rhetoric and logic. So that you can think properly, you can express yourself properly, and you can do it effectively. It's classic, even Western education, these are the three foundations, right? So that's your primary education in the end. And you're going to study Aqidah, and you're going to study Fiqh, and you're going to study these things. And then after you get that foundation, you study other things. So, you know, your, your, maybe your elementary school is all Islamic studies. Maybe your middle school starts to mix a little bit. And if we're honest, by the time you finish high school, you're still going to know what you need to know. I mean, really. Uh, like, people don't like when I say it, but that's... What you need to know from science, if you really wanted to know it, I'm talking about like grade school science, if you really wanted to know it, you could know it pretty quickly. All the stuff that you studied in like third grade and fourth grade and stuff, it's going to be under what you study in 11th grade. <laughs> you know? So it's not necessarily that you have to do that for all those years. Like you, you, you could stack the system differently, is my point. Um, and focus on adab, and focus on Quran, and focus on stories of the prophets and all these other things, and then later on you do your science. In which case, your science might actually fall into the category of Islamic studies now. Because you already finished your foundation in Islamic studies. You finished your wajib already. But for, for the most part, like the average American Muslim, they haven't actually finished their obligatory Islamic knowledge. They've taken a lot of information here and there, but they don't have their obligatory Islamic knowledge. But if someone had their obligatory Islamic knowledge, and their relationship with Allah was sound, and they were specializing in like medicine, which obviously is a discipline not meant to make money, but to help people. Okay, uh, they're, they're specializing in physics. And the reason why they're specializing in physics is because they want to use that knowledge to find solutions to problems that people face. That's wonderful. Inshallah, it's khair. And we hope that people will get rewarded for that. Inshallah. But we have to make sure that our foundation is strong. When our foundation is strong, then everything else goes in the right direction. But if our foundation isn't strong, then everything we do is just on... You know, have that in It's just like blowing in the wind. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyone else have anything? Yes. By the way, the kids are, I think their program is done. So if you have little ones, just keep an eye out. Inshallah. Um, inshallah, the space is largely safe. Alhamdulillah, it's closed in and stuff, but it's always good to keep an eye out. Yes. Two questions. First question is, 
What is this obligatory knowledge? Is it like a five, six year program of Islamic studies? Is it something else? And second question is, are we required to pass that knowledge on and down? Or can we just get it basically for ourselves? Okay. So obligatory knowledge is far less than a five year program. It's actually far less than most people realize. Um, it's basically to know the absolute minimum of what is required about Allah and the Prophet and a few things about the Day of Judgment. It can probably be done in like four to six hours. If you wanted to like really do it in some detail, it could take you like 10 to 12 hours. But basic Aqidah can be done in 10, let's say 10 hours, you know. Um, <clears throat> of course, if someone wants to study afterwards, that's great. And their obligation can change. This is maybe another point that should be said. So I'm going to get to the other parts of it. But like the basic obligatory knowledge about Allah and His Prophet them. Actually, you don't even need 10 hours. Like we could cover it right now in 10 minutes. But most people will probably want to know a little bit more. And if you're in an environment that exposes you to more doubts, then your obligatory knowledge increases. Um, you know, so if someone's going to go to like a Western university and take GEs and philosophy and and gender and 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 history and sociology and all these kind of things, then their obligatory knowledge of Aqidah is actually going to need to be more. It's not going to be like a 10-hour thing. It's probably going to be a 30-40 hour thing. Which is still not that much actually when you think about it, right? Um, <coughs> Second category is obligatory knowledge so that we know how to, whatever thing that we're doing, we know how to do it soundly. So the first obligation in that, of course, is how do I make wudu, what breaks my wudu, what doesn't break my wudu, so on and so forth. How do I become pure so that I can pray? And then the second part of that is how do I pray? Everything related to it. Third part of that would be if I live long enough and I have health to fast in Ramadan, what is the requirement of Ramadan? Fourth requirement would be to how do I pay zakat? If I don't have money, I don't have to know that actually. But, you know, if I have money, I have to pay zakat. I have to know the rules. If I deal in business, I have to know the rules of business. If I'm going to invest my money, I have to know the rules of investment. So the minimum obligation depends on what I'm, what I'm engaging in, actually. But the basic, basic minimum, again, can be done relatively quickly. You know, again, something probably like 10 to 12 hours. On the Medjlis YouTube page, we have all this stuff. On the YouTube page and on the SoundCloud. Some of them are only audio. Like I did a class in Hanifi Fiqh, only the audio is there. I don't have video. But you can find it on the SoundCloud. You can't find it on the YouTube. And then on YouTube for basic Aqidah knowledge, Sheikh Fuad has done two series that cover that. He's done the Creed of Oneness in four sessions. And he did Sughra Sughra of Imam Sanusi, which he called the Minor Redaction. And I think like six or eight sessions or something. That covers your basic Aqidah. But, you know, again, if you're going to go to college, if you're going to deal with contemporary issues and stuff like that, then you should probably listen to his class on Getting Our Minds Right, which goes through the entire intellectual history of Islam, which is you know, pretty cool. Uh, and then the third thing that we have to know, obligatory knowledge, is the basics of spirituality. What are the qualities that I'm supposed to have in my heart? And what are the ones that I cannot have? And the basics of how to do that. It's also not so difficult to acquire. But I have to know, for example, that I'm not supposed to be jealous of people. That I'm not supposed to backbite people. I'm not supposed to speak ill of them, so on and so forth. All of these things are basic individual obligations that we have to do. 
Um, and if we don't do them, uh, Sami and Omar, I really wanted them to meet. So alhamdulillah, they're meeting. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> alhamdulillah, it happened. Um, so we have to know that. We have to know that. Meaning, what that means is, if it's an individual obligation, what that means is, if I don't do it, I'm sinful. This is what an individual obligation means. If I don't do it myself, I'm sinful every single day that I didn't do it. It's one of the failures of Islamic education in the West. We're really interested in like cool stories and, and, uh, and I get it, like I really do. I'm, I'm interested in them too. And you know, when I was like really into activism and stuff, and people are like, no, you have to know your fatahim. Like, how do you pray? I'm like, I know how to pray. Did I really know how to pray? Not really, actually. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't really know it. I didn't really know, okay, this is how you do this, this is not how you do this. And if I'm sincere with Allah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no, we're doing these big things, we're calling people to Islam, we're doing this activism stuff. If you're sincere with Allah, you should, know how, you should want to know how to pray properly. Really, like, it should be something that... So, you know, these are the individual obligations. Do you have to teach it to other people? If you go beyond that, going beyond that is called a communal obligation, fart kifaya. It's different than fart ayin. It's fart kifaya, meaning the entirety of the community is responsible for it. But if some people do it, everybody's not sinful. Some people have to do it, the other ones have to support them morally and materially. And if that happens, then everybody, the sin is lifted off everybody. But if it doesn't happen, then the entire community is sinful. And we talked about this also. Like it's a requirement for every single Muslim community to have people of knowledge in their community. If there aren't people of knowledge in the community, then everyone in the community is sinful until that, until that wajib is taken care of. Right? It's very important. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. It's not like, uh, it makes sense. So. Uh, are we required to teach it? Probably not, especially if we're talking about individual obligation level. However, there may be times when we are. So if I have that individual obligation knowledge and I have a child, I'm required to teach it to them unless they're getting it from somewhere else. They have to get it. Either I give it to them or someone else gives it to them. But if I can give it to them and nobody else can give it to them, I have to give it to them. Um, and that applies to basically everything. If I have a piece of knowledge and it's sound and it's true and someone else doesn't have it and they need it and I have it, the means to give it to them, I have to give it to them. I can't conceal it. But does that mean I have to become like a public teacher? And No, you don't have to do any of that. A lot of people who we studied with, by the way, they don't teach anymore. Usually because they couldn't live meaningful, they couldn't live uh, lives that they felt were sufficient for them and their family, so they went and did something else. But many of them just don't teach, you know, not everyone's inclined to teach. It's people who, they went and studied, I know people who studied, they finished entire degree in Azhar, they don't teach. They barely even give khutbah, they might give khutbah every now and then. Because they probably realize some of those khutbahs are wajib for them. Because everyone else is getting up and giving khutbah, they don't know what they're saying. So like, if I graduated from Azhar, I should probably get up and give the khutbah. Maybe I don't want to teach the details, someone else is doing that, alhamdulillah. You know, but there's certain responsibilities, they have to be filled. Um, you know. Like I believe, for example, that it's obligatory for me to give khutbah every week. If I'm asked, I'm not gonna, you know, it's not the adab to go and tell someone, hey, can I give khutbah, it's like really ugly. Um, People of learning, they have 
their own way of moving. They don't move like the same way everyone else moves. So when you see like clickbait stuff from sheikhs, know that this is a huge disaster. Like this is not, you are not supposed to be moving like that as a person of knowledge, you know. Um, so it's not how they operate. So anyways, but so we don't always have to, but if there's a reason why we should, then we should. It might be, for example, that I don't have to sit and teach in the masjid, but I do need to teach youth group because youth group doesn't have anyone to teach them and like the, the kids need someone to spend time with and so on and so forth. And all of that's good. Oh, man. I hope that helps a little bit. <coughs> anyone else have anything? As I always say, everyone is free to leave whenever they want to leave. You know, the idea of the medjus is that we welcome each other, we, we love one another, we spend time with each other. Uh, my responsibility is that insofar as I can, if people have questions, I'll answer them. And I'll stay for that. But that doesn't mean that you have to be in prison to that. So if you want to get up and leave, there's no, like, uh, uh, it doesn't bother me, you know? Uh, get up and go, and it's not impolite in any sort of way, and it's totally fine. Especially when we get to question and answer, you know? Even before that, though, if you have to come late, come late. It's better than not coming. If you have to leave early, leave early. It's better than not coming, you know? So, yes? Yeah, again, it's, so why when you're a student of knowledge, part of what you're told is that there's an obligation to teach it. Again, there is, but what is the obligation exactly? Right? So, say for example, I live in a community, and someone more senior than me is teaching. And they're teaching in a way that suffices the community's needs. It's not obligatory for me to teach. Yeah. Um, but if there's a need for it, then it, it can become obligatory for me to teach. Uh, yeah. And also, you know, the, the scholars will always say that, you know, you only pay zakat once you reach the nisab. <laughs> right? Like in, in, in zakat, you only pay zakat once you have a certain amount of money, right? You don't pay zakat when you have $100. You pay zakat when you have like five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. So they say that when it comes to learning and knowledge and stuff, you pay zakat once you hit the nisab. Like once you've, once you've learned, a, you know, an amount that gives you some level of, uh, like, tathabbut, you know, they really know what they're saying, then, they, you know, if there's a need for it, then they should teach. Before that point, even if there's a need, they might not necessarily have to teach. Because <coughs> they didn't reach that point yet. And it's actually, um, I personally think that it's important for people not to, you know, people always say, when you teach, you learn more and stuff. It's true, but when you teach, you're also responsible for what you teach. So, you know, there's a give and take in it. Um, you don't always have to teach. Maybe someone else can teach. Just case it's like, okay, let them teach. Alhamdulillah. You know? Uh, and definitely, it's not the same. You know, it's not. It's someone who just, for example, maybe they studied a text once. And they're teaching it. Alhamdulillah, if there's a need for it, there's a need for it. Uh, but it's not the same as someone who's taught that text ten times. Or someone who's read twenty books in that subject and sat with three different scholars and studied in the subject. Like, it's different. You know? So, anyways, I think it's clear.
Sorry. <laughs> Anyone else have anything? Yes. You So this idea that there's wadi that, there's things that descend upon our hearts and how we deal with it, the mechanics of it. <coughs> and is there something in like the Quran and the Hadith that talk about this or so on? Um, so there's two things here. One is that each discipline is different. So in the discipline of Aqidah, for example, how we come to conclusions in Aqidah is based on very clear evidence. Okay, so if we're going to say something about Allah, about the Prophets and Allah who are them, the type of evidence that we're using basically has to be certain. When we're dealing with fit, usually the conclusions we come to are not necessarily based on certainty, but they're based on very high probability. Okay, when it comes to issues of spirituality, it's very different actually. So in issues of spirituality, They'll say that like it's guided by the Quran, by the Sunnah, by of course like the teachings of Aqidah, the teachings of Fiqh. But a lot of what we're taught in a practical sense when it comes to spirituality is actually by experience. It's by tajriba. So, um, so as a general concept, like there's verses in the Quran that talk about you know I mentioned last week I think there's a verse. That if the people of the village, villages had believed and had taqwa, we would have opened for them blessings in the heavens and the earth. So what is barakah actually? Barakah is unseen. It's, it's an unseen thing. And there's, there's many verses in hadith that talk about this idea of an increase in barakah. So is that something that's tangible? Yes and no. But it's something that's unseen. So this is related. Like we know that we feel gratitude sometimes. We know that we feel impatient sometimes. Right? So this can come from different places. It can come from a lot. Can come from our nafs. It can come from different areas. But again, it's largely known through a combination of general things in the in the text and experience. So when Imam Dardir says you should do this, he's just saying that based on experience. It's not like some sort of like, I saw the Prophet do this type thing. But when we look at the example of the Prophet we do see that he was very composed. Right? See that he was very composed, he was very controlled. Um, there's like times when the Qur'an would be revealed and he would be absolutely still. Right? So there's different things that maybe like Ustatnas would be had. One would take some sort of... Um, I don't know how you translate that. They would take, um, maybe like take a hint from them, but it's not. These are not matters of like direct text. Yeah. You know, most of like spiritual guidance, a lot of it is like that. You know, if, if if someone has like a teacher and they tell them, oh, they go to them, they tell them, I'm having issues with patience, and the sheikh tells them, you should try this and try this and try this. It's largely experiential, right? It's, 
and it's based on their own experience or it's based on something that they gleaned from somewhere else. But it's not necessarily like the Prophet gave you know, this particular guidance on how to fix patients. From the beginning, yeah. So, like we quoted Hassan al-Basri. Hassan al-Basri was known to be from the spiritual masters of his time, and so people would go to him. They ask his advice, and they they seek, you know. And because what happens? Because now we're talking about someone's lived experience with Allah. So, it's it is about experience actually. It's not about like a theoretical thing, and but that's that's there from the beginning. Yeah, that people had those relationships and they had again even from the Sahaba there were people who were who was known like Abu Bakr had a different rank than everyone else Omar had a different rank than everyone else so if Abu Bakr gives you an advice in terms of like how to improve your relationship with Allah it's going to be based on his experience but his experience means something because it's guided by the Quran it's guided by his experience with the Prophet uh, but it is important to remember that it is his experience right so someone might come to you and you might give, ask for advice from someone on some issue and it's good to understand where is it coming from. You know, because maybe it doesn't work for me. Maybe it worked for them, but it doesn't work for me. You know? It's a good question. Alright, you good?